This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. Hear the word of the Lord. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he, Jesus, had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to disciples to set before the people. He divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning. We're working our way through uh, the Gospel of Mark together in our sermon times. And we're now... Uh, in the middle of chapter six. So I'm glad that you're here. If you haven't been with us before, there's a lot that's gone ahead of this text um, and there's a lot in this text. So we've got our work cut out for us. Um, The apostles at this point are returning back from being out on a mission. They've been sent out as emissaries by Christ to multiply his ministry, to multiply and expand his redemption, his influence, um, on the earth. And so they're coming back and a lot of scholars think they've been gone as long as nine months considering um, what he told them to do and where they went and and what all was expected from them. And so they come back and they've got lots and lots of stories they need to share with Jesus. And they're pretty worn out and tired. And we talked about two weeks ago what their instructions were for their mission. So we won't belabor that point, but essentially they were, they, they experienced wild success. It says um, at the end of that story explaining them being sent out, I think it's verse 13, it says that they, they did a lot of amazing ministry. They, they cast out lots of demons and they, they healed a lot of people and they, they, they taught a lot of folks the gospel. And then we have that story about John the Baptist in the middle, uh, which we covered last week. And then today's text is introduced uh, by this idea um, in verse 30, that the gospels returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And they had done such an amazing job and they were so famous that it now says that the crowds and the people from all around Northern Galilee are chasing after not Jesus, but the disciples. Now, Jesus had given them his name, his authority, his power. He told them to go out 
and to do ministry in his name. And so people now, verse 33 makes it very clear to us, the people are now following the disciples because they wanna get back to the one, to this Jesus who gave them the authority and the power to do these things that they had never seen, let alone ever heard of. Just amazing things were happening through them. And it says in the text that the crowds were coming and going. It kind of gives us this idea that it wasn't one crowd, but it was multiple crowds, maybe even as many as six, that were following the disciples back. And it gives us the indication that the one crowd would leave from being with Jesus and another one would come in. And it just says they were exhausted. It says, in fact, that they didn't even have time to eat, that they were doing so much ministry and the need was so great. And so Jesus says, I want you guys to come away with me. Let's go to a desolate place together. Let's go out into the desert. Let's go out into the barren wasteland that is to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And let's go recuperate. You got to remember from chapter three, a long time ago, that when Jesus called these 12 into ministry, when he called them into his kingdom work, the first thing they had to understand was that they had to be with Jesus before they could be sent out in his name, that the intimacy that is in their relationship with him is what drives them in their ministry. And so from coming back from this exhaustive work, Jesus knows that if they don't re-energize, if they don't take a break, if they don't spend time with him again, then they will be run by their ministry instead of running their ministry. So Jesus tells them, let's get away and let's go take a break. And so what we understand from the text is they got in a boat and they were on the northern shore, probably the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. And they just start to take this boat along the top of the Sea of Galilee. And they probably were not cutting across the Sea of Galilee because it says the people saw them going. But instead of walking, they decided, hey, we're right here by a lake. Let's jump in a boat and let's let the wind do all the work for us. And so as they are going across the top of the Sea of Galilee, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, all these crowds see them, recognize them, and start chasing to get in front of them so they're there when they land. And so although Jesus is telling us, look, you were built to have rest one day in seven, even before sin entered into the world, I decided that you should rest one day in seven. But not only that, if you're gonna do ministry in my name, you've gotta get away and be reminded of who you are in me so that you can effectively minister in my kingdom. And even though that is the case, Jesus says to his disciples, their needs trump ours. Because when he gets there, he does not tell them to leave. This is our day off. He has compassion on them and he begins to minister to them. And at the very end of this text, after the disciples have been engaged in more ministry than they thought they could handle, it is when they have their baskets full of food and they have their bellies filled. And so Jesus is all for giving us rest, but we're to consider others' needs as more important than our own. So this is where we find Jesus. This passage, the feeding of the 5,000, is I would guess, I think it's fair to say this is probably one of the most widely known texts in all of the gospels. And my guess is, I know this was true of me at the beginning of the week when I began to study, my guess is this is the one of the most under- understood texts in all the Bible. I don't want to say misunderstood because we know a lot of really good stuff that is true about this text, but I think it's the most under understood text in all the Bible, in all the gospels, excuse me. So let's, let's dig into this. First, it's one of the most well-known texts in all the Bible. All four gospels have it. Did you know that this is the only miracle story that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record? The only one. I mean, just think about Lazarus being raised from the dead. Only John captures that. Not only that, really important stuff that are not miracles, like the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, it's not captured in any other book. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all 
They are all collecting and, and under God's direction, they are writing the story of Jesus's life and ministry in the beginning of his church. They're writing this story to a unique people with a unique purpose, being led by God to meet a unique need. And yet all of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all found this miracle to be the only miracle that they should all record. That means it's paradigmatic for us. That means it's part of the paradigm that we have to understand in order to get Christianity. It's a big deal. And so the reason that this is a widely known text is because it's in all four books. And not only that, in chapter eight, we're gonna find out not only did Jesus feed these 5,000, but later in a couple of chapters, he's gonna feed 4,000 more. And then after that, he's gonna tell his disciples, did you not understand after I fed the 5,000? And then did you not understand after I fed the 4,000? In other words, it wasn't just recorded twice by air. It actually happened that way. And Mark himself, as the editor of this book, is going to make mention to the hardness of the disciples' heart because they don't understand this text. This is a really big deal. That's why it's so widely understood, uh, unknown. But the other reason that it's widely known is because it's sort of the most hippie-esque miracle that Jesus performs. I mean, in my mind's eye, you know, I'm seeing a really righteous, holy, hippie revolution. You know what I'm saying? They're out on the green grass. And I can see red checkered blankets. And I can see the kids throwing Frisbees and playing with Obama's new dog. And there's Obama just running right along with them. And they're just having a blast. And in my mind, I see the adults drinking wine from a box, just having a good old time. And I see these people in Jesus' eye, he looks at him, he's like, oh, look at those cute, fluffy little white sheep. I just want to cuddle them little things. The text is gonna tell us, history is gonna tell us, the story itself is gonna tell us, what Mark says is going to tell us that something radically different is going on here. Let's dig into it. First of all, you've gotta know that the crowd's motive is revolution. You've gotta know that the crowd's motive is revolution. Several clues will suggest that this is not a rustic, simple, cute, little fluffy sheep kind of story. Mark tells us three times that they're in a desolate place. It's important to him. He's trying to get across the fact that Jesus has taken his disciples into a desolate place. Do you wanna know who hung out in the desolate places of the Middle East? The same people today that hang out in the desolate places of the Middle East, revolutionaries. We know from history that this area to the north of Galilee and the northeast of Galilee is where all the guerrillas would hang out, the zealots plotting the overthrow of Rome that this is the hotbed territory of revolutionaries. That's why Mark tells us three times that Jesus takes them into this desolate place is because he knows that his audience will know the only people that choose to live there are the ones training for the overthrow of Rome through violence. Not only that, Mark tells us in this text at the very end, he said, listen, there are 5,000 men He does not say there are 5,000 people like he will in Romans 8. He doesn't say there are 5,000 people like Matthew. He said there are 5,000 men. And listen, they ran 10 plus miles to get ahead of Jesus. We're not talking about people that caught a cab to get here. We're talking about people that saw unbelievable deeds and words in the disciples. And they were doing it in the name of this guy named Jesus. We'll come back to that in a second. And they thought, our revolutionary leader is here. Do you think I'm making too much of this? Do you know that in John 6, when this text is told from John's perspective, he tells us exactly why the crowd is there. They intended to take him and force him to be their king. 
can be taken either way. Either that means they want to arrest Jesus and tell him you're going to be our king, or it means they want to make him king by force in Rome. Of course, we know from the rest of the Bible and history that indeed these zealots did try to overthrow or kick Rome out of Jerusalem, and it was one of the most horrible days in the nation of, the nation of Israel has ever known when Rome came back and besieged and sacked Jerusalem. And so the hope of the revolutionaries is this. This one with all this power and authority is going to lead us into the violent revolution that we've longed for. Let's pick up in our text when Jesus sees them. He sees them in verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. Now, isn't that interesting? We normally think of Jesus' compassion when he sees blind people or people that have been bleeding for 12 years. We normally think of his compassion when someone's lost a loved one. He has compassion on gorillas who want him to train them in weapons warfare and how to, how to deal in the actions of kamikazes and, and take them in to Jerusalem and kick out Rome. And it says he has compassion on them. Not what I feel when I watch the revolutions in Thailand this week. I don't feel compassion. And so Jesus sees them and he has compassion on them. And he says, he must have either said to Peter or somehow later he indicated to Peter who told Mark that he felt compassion. And then he thought of them as sheep without a shepherd. That's when you and I go to pastoral settings. Pastoral like pasture, like sheep. He didn't think of them as little sheep. When, when he says he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, it is a direct quote from Numbers chapter 27. Numbers chapter 27 is when Moses, the guy who has brought the people out of, the, out of Egypt, and they wandered around with Moses for 40 years in the wilderness. And finally, they're gonna get to go into the promised land and they're gonna displace the, the people in the promised land that don't belong there. And they are going to displace them by force. This is what Moses prays in Numbers 27. Moses spoke to the Lord, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, anoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus sees them and he knows exactly what they want and he feels compassion for them. And it's almost as if you and I reading the text were like, what, is he gonna do what they want? Is he going to become their Joshua, their Jesus, who's gonna take them into Jerusalem and overthrow Rome? This doesn't sound anything like Jesus. This is throwing me off. And then the two camps, their ways split at the very next sentence that we read in the Gospel of Mark. They do not come to him and say, you're our man. We will follow you into death. We are being oppressed. We are being treated poorly. We have no rights. Come and let's go throw Rome out of Jerusalem. That's what they're saying to him. And you know what he says? He doesn't say, okay, well, let's, let's see if we can go raise some money so we can buy some guns. And let's see if we can get you guys trained. I'm gonna need, uh, who's the best 12 fighters here? I need the best 12 fighters. We're gonna break up into groups and we're gonna learn how to fight. And uh, we're gonna surround Jerusalem. What does he say? Go back to the text and look at it. And he began to teach them many things. This is where the shock comes in. Not only did he teach them many things, he taught them for a very long time. 
This is so, so important. This is so important because Jesus knows that they want liberty and freedom and redemption and salvation and deliverance. And in order to give them what they need, not what they want, he teaches them the gospel. He is going to be the revolutionary leader that they need, but not the one that they want. Because he knows, just like John the Baptist last week, he knows that their desires are too narrow, they're too small, they're too limited. He knows that what he has for them is is far beyond their wildest imaginations. And so what he does for them in compassion is he begins to teach them the gospel. Now listen, Mark doesn't say in here he teaches them the gospel. But we've been reading through Mark for six chapters. We already know that there's only two basic sermons in the Bible. One sermon, repent and believe or believe and repent, whichever, whichever way you wanna look at it. Remember, this is the sermon that Jesus has. This is the sermon that the disciples go out and preach. When we have one of Jesus' sermons recorded in Matthew 5, do you wanna know how it starts? Blessed are the poor in spirit. It literally means blessed are the spiritually bankrupt because they're gonna inherit the kingdom of God. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to say, I don't have any value in and of myself. I don't bring anything to the table. I don't bring anything to you in this relationship other than my brokenness and my bankruptcy. And you're telling me that if I trust you with that information and believe you that you will give me the new heavens and the new earth in an intimate relationship with you. And so Mark's style, Mark's style is to kind of tell us who Jesus is. And more importantly, he tells us what Jesus does. It is not Mark's style to tell us what Jesus says. But we can ascertain from what has already happened and we can know from the other books of the Bible that Jesus is saying to them, repent for trying to find life in revolution. Repent for trying to find life in being in control. Repent for trying to find life having racial supremacy. Repent for trying to find life in anything other than me and then come find satisfaction. We're gonna come to that at the end of the text where they go from these violent, vicious revolutionaries into these sheep that literally are sitting down feeling the satisfaction of the gospel. And Jesus says, you can come have all you can imagine with me. It's not gonna come through the way you think it's gonna come, but it's gonna be even better. And not only that, my guess is he probably taught them some of the other things he taught, like love your enemy. When Jesus teaches on the imperial rule of Rome, he does not say, let's fight them with violence. He says, when they tell you to carry their bag, you carry it an extra mile. That we're going to overwhelm them with sacrificial service. That we are going to get Jerusalem back. Not through violent revolution, but through service and love. He he, he says to them, I think... (laughs) You're arrogant to think that you could rule any better and not overdo it. Is this not what we see in Somalia? Is this not what we see when we watch protests around the world that those who have truly been oppressed, those who truly have been treated poorly, those who truly have experienced injustice do no better with the power once they gain it. And Jesus is saying, look, come to me and find satisfaction and rest and life. And so Jesus is teaching them all of these many things. He's going on and on and on. And the revolutionary leader is leading them in the way of the revolution, which is to teach them the gospel. And the disciples' bellies start to growl. If you got your Bibles open, go back to verse uh, 35. And let's just walk through this. Not only is Jesus the revolutionary leader that they need, he engages his disciples. This is primarily where I'm gonna apply this to our lives. He engages his disciples as the instigators 
the inadequate and the indispensable revolutionaries of his revolution. The disciples come with a reasonable, logic, logical, and even thoughtful suggestion. Do lunch on your own. When you go to a conference, there's a great conference that happens in Orlando twice a year. I used to love it because it was held at the Sheraton, which is right down the road from my house, right there at Ivanhoe. But now it's like down near all the consumerism and the commercialism of Orlando, way down there. And the reason that they moved it down there was not for a better facility, not for a better view. They did it because they needed more restaurants. So when they said, do lunch on your own, people could go and be back in 90 minutes. It's just true. And the disciples come to Jesus and say, listen, you're a great, great conference speaker. You're doing a fantastic job speaking to these people. But listen, we're in charge of the details and you just keep your mind up there in the realm of ideas and and whatever it is you're talking about. But these people and and we're hungry. So let's dismiss them for lunch and tell them to come back in 90 minutes. More than likely, it's dinner. It sounds like from the text that it's very late. They sense some responsibility here. After all, these people have been following them. And this does seem preferable to do nothing, to doing nothing. And then Jesus says in verse 37, he says, you. In the Greek language, you don't have to underline, you don't have to use bold, you don't have to put italics. You can put the emphasis in a sentence where you want it by what grammar you use. He very emphatically says, you, you give them something to eat. And the disciples respond, I think, as sarcastically and disrespectfully as they do in all the Bible. You're a crazy superstar conference speaker boy, but... 200 denarii. Do you want us to spend 200 denarii? This is what a laborer would make in a year. Do you, do you want us to go out and, and buy food with 200 denarii? John, when he records a story, says, if we do that, they'll get one bite apiece. Not only that, did you forget that you just sent us out into the mission with not even a penny in our belt? They're disrespectful because what Jesus asked them to do is absolutely impossible. Jesus is undeterred and he is not humored. Verse 38, he says, you, how much food do you have? Go and look, a command. He's committed to using them to meet this need. The food that he will give to the 5,000 has got to be provided through his disciples and not from the crowd. They come back in verse 38b. We have one meal Did you know that five barley loaves, they're like flat. They look more like tortillas than they do the loaves you would buy at Panera. We have five tortillas. We have a couple of salt cods. They're about this big. We have one good meal. And Jesus says, perfect. Tell everybody to sit down and get ready for their satisfaction. We're gonna come back at communion to what Jesus did with what they gave him. But look at the lessons that we can learn in our life just from this interaction. First of all, I was thinking about my prayer life. You know, right? Listen, Jesus is not on earth anymore. He's now in heaven. And now we don't walk up to talk to him. We pray to him. And I was thinking about my prayer life in this text. The disciples, just like the revolutionaries, have a great idea about what Jesus could do for them and how they can manage who he is to their ends. I think about my prayer life. I just, I'm just blown away that, that I go to Jesus. I, I feel so self-righteous about how much I pray because I go to him and tell him all the time how brilliantly he could run his universe if he would just do this and do that. And do you see that need? And do you see that problem? And what about this? And should we do something about that? What are you doing? Where are you at? 
What I've learned, what I've thought through, where I've repented this week is the idea that prayer, prayer is not me going to Jesus telling him how to run his universe. Prayer is me going to Jesus and hearing what I should do in his universe. Got it backwards. I've got it all wrong. But not only that, listen to this. Listen to what is obvious in the text that Mark belabors. Jesus won't do this miracle without them. They're literally his hands. While they are rendered paralyzed by what they don't have, Jesus focuses on what they do have. Sure, they're inadequate, absolutely inadequate, yet they're indispensable to Jesus's plan. This is our lesson for today. Until we see that our inadequate and absolutely unqualified, until we see that we're inadequate and absolutely unqualified to do what he is telling us to do, we are unqualified to do it. Huh? Say that again. Until we see that we're inadequate and unqualified to do what he's telling us to do, until we see that we're inadequate, we are inadequate. That seeing that we're inadequate actually begins to make us adequate. The owning the fact that what he's telling me to do, I'm unqualified for, when I begin to say that out loud and own that and depend on his miraculous strength, that's when I become qualified. If you're new to the Bible, this is going to be so weird for you to hear. But listen, we've been reading through 1 Corinthians and we've been reading all these ironic statements like he uses our poverty to shame the rich. He uses our weakness to shame the strong. He, he uses our brokenness to shame those who think they're whole. I mean, listen, Christianity is based on the idea that I come to you, I get righteousness, I get justification, I get my relationship with you by coming to you and telling you how unrighteous I am how unqualified I am, how I have no justification for relationship with you. I mean, it all starts right there with me saying, I don't deserve a drop of it. And it goes with that same ironic paradigm for the rest of our lives. That in feeling inadequate for what he has asked us to do, we begin to become adequate. We just read this in 1 Corinthians 8. Did you guys stop and read it again this week like me? If any, listen, verse two, if anyone thinks that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. What? If anyone thinks he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. That when you say, I'm adequate for what you're asking me to do, Jesus, here we go, you're completely inadequate. That when you think you know that lesson you're supposed to teach your city group really well, you don't know it yet. I don't understand it. I'm just trying to convey to you what I'm seeing here and what I'm convicted of. One commentary wrote it this way. It is not God's intention that we should be in ourselves adequate to our tasks, rather that we should be inadequate. If we only accept the tasks that we think are adapted to our powers, we will not be responding to the authentic call of God. The church is always in crisis. It always will be. There will always be difficulties, always limitations, always insoluble problems, always a lack of people, always a lack of money. There will be a menacing outlook. There will be endless misunderstandings, endless misinterpretations. And we are not only to do our work despite these things. They are precisely the conditions requisite for doing it. We don't engage in the mission in spite of our inadequacies. We engage in the mission because of them. Why does this matter? Let's just be honest. We have a silly little vision statement around here. It's ridiculous. It says that we want every resident of Orlando to be loved, to love God, and to love neighbor. Every resident of Orlando. It is our desire that everyone who lives in Metro Orlando 
would know about the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel, that they will joyfully respond to that by obeying God and that they will serve others as more significant than themselves. We, want, we don't want a hundred. We don't want just enough to pay the bills. That would be something we're adequate for. We want every resident of Orlando to be in the kingdom of God. I was uh, really lonely on Friday. Friday's a great day for me because usually I'm the only one there in the afternoon and, and hopefully I'm starting to write the sermon by then. But I was, um, I was feeling the need for some coffee. I was feeling the need for a little, uh, a little boost. And so um, I decided to get up and to go and use our coffee maker and make some. And not audibly, of course, but I felt like God, by his Holy Spirit, was leading me to get up and to go buy a cup of coffee. And so I was like, well, it's much more effective for me to stay here. And like, there are real people out there that might need me. And I might run into some of our people out there. And I really need to write this sermon. So I think I'll just stay here. And he's like, no, I really would like to see you go out and buy a cup of coffee. Again, this doesn't happen all the time to me. It wasn't audible. It was an email. I'm just joking. And, um, <laughs> and so I was like, all right, cool. I'll walk up to Starbucks. Our, our office is on South Eola, south of Central. It's like, cool, I'll, I'll walk to Starbucks. And I felt like he was saying, I want you to go to Panera. Panera? They have terrible coffee at Panera. <laughs> so I'd like to see you walk straight up Eola through all those condos and past all those businesses. And I'd like to see you walk up to Panera and get yourself a cup of coffee. And so what has been my habit for a long time now is to pray when I walk. I'm praying for... You know, I'm praying for the sanctuary and the 101 and, and I'm just praying for these businesses and I'm praying for City Fish and I'm praying for all these things. And I finally get up to the corner right there where the playground is at Lake Yola. And I was like, oh my gosh, look at all those kids. And Jesus goes, really? Every resident of Orlando? Is that what we're gonna go for? Do you feel inadequate? Yes, absolutely. Do you feel unqualified? You got it. I'm there right now. I said, great, why don't you go to Starbucks and get some coffee? <laughs> I did. I went to Starbucks. They were out of Pike's Place. Hallelujah. And um, they asked me, what would you like us to brew? We're so sorry you're gonna have to wait for it. So I told them, you know, whatever you have besides Pike's Place is fine with me. And then they gave it to me for free. It felt like a little sacramental, sacramental gift from God to me. We were gonna go on this little walk. <laughs> and he was gonna teach me how inadequate I was to write on a piece of paper every resident of Orlando. Listen, there may be a hundred of you. Maybe, I, I'm not good with numbers. I got no idea. I can't get you to read the Bible with me. I can't. I can't get you to jump into small groups that are gonna be missional and move out and meet the needs of our city. I can't. And, and who am I to talk? Who am I to talk? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been driving up Mills Avenue from my office to come here to try and preach to you. And I think, I wonder how bad of an accident I'd have to have to not have to preach, but not be heard. I'm not lying. That's crossed my crazy mind. I was in a meeting this Tuesday about the distressing neighborhoods of Orlando and just talking about the incredible needs of the gospel in real physical, social, psychological, emotional ways. And it just crushed me to think, look at all the work that has to be done here for us to really write on a piece of paper every resident of Orlando. And Jesus is getting us to a place where we say, you know what? If you don't show up with miraculous power, we're done.
Can I invite you guys to come back into this with me as I've been invited back into it this week? For us to go and say, I know I don't have enough, but I know I've got this and you can have it because I know you're in the business of taking what people have that is inadequate. And when they realize that it's not enough, you take it and you multiply it and you make it enough. That's the business that Jesus is in. He is in the business of taking people like us and doing miracles through us. So we're at that place, if you're not a believer, where you're like, oh, I was with you all the way up to the miracle part. I even liked the whole cool part. I didn't realize that Jesus was one of these peaceful revolutionary types. I really liked that. That's pretty cool. But you got me with the miracle part. Look, Mark will not let us get away from knowing that this is a miracle. They have one good meal and it feeds 5,013 men. There's something going on here, but I just want you to think about this. When we think about miracles, when you and I consider miracles, we think that if we had that kind of power, what would we do with it? How would we use it? Why would we ever want to have that kind of power? If you're like me, if you had that kind of power, you would just be into special effects, grandiose, spectacular special effects, just because they're special effects. And we would be into these grandiose special effects that caused people to follow us and to think we're famous and to love us and to do whatever we say. And we would use this power to advance ourselves. If we don't stop and talk about this believer and unbeliever, if we don't talk about this right now as to what Jesus' miracles are about, we're going to think they're special effects to get his viewer ratings up. They're not. If they were special effects, let's just think about this miracle. Why would he do this the way he did it? The text gives us no idea as to how he did this. It just says he kept giving the disciples food. The disciples bring the five loaves and the two fishes and they keep going out to the 50s and the 100s and they keep coming back and he keeps giving it to them and they keep coming back and he keeps giving it to them. And in fact, I will tell you this, the text does not tell us what the crowd thinks about this. This is very strange for Mark. He's been telling us all along that they were experiencing shock and awe. You know why I don't think he records what their response is, is because I don't think they knew he did a miracle. All the best commentaries I read on this text say, listen, we just don't think the 5,000 men had any idea how they were fed. And so if Jesus is gonna use his miracles, if he's gonna use his miracles, how would he have done this one? He would have been like Tom Hanks in the Polar Express. He would have sat him down the music would have started and all these servers and waiters would have come from nowhere and they'd be throwing food around. They'd be dancing and they would be twirling and the kids' eyes, I mean, they'd be, their eyes would be this big. They'd be like, that's amazing. I'll follow you to the North Pole. He doesn't do it that way. Why? Because they're not raw displays of power. If you think about his miracles, when he does something absolutely spectacular, like walking on water. He does it at night when only 12 people can see him. And when he raises little girls from the dead, he does not bring them out on national television and say, come on up out of your sleep. He goes into a room, closes the door, and only lets eight people in. And he says, don't tell anybody about this. His miracles are not raw displays of power. They are restorations of what he created. Listen, Jesus is more upset about what's happening in our city than we are. He did not create it to be like this. He did not create poverty. He did not create injustice. He did not create famine. He did not create starving people. He did not create nature that would kill people. He didn't. 
That's our fault. That's our sin. And so when Jesus comes back in bodily form to reconcile and redeem and to renew all that is his, he unleashes his power for redemptive purposes only and not to create a following. We can't get around the fact that it's a miracle, but the way that it happens and what it tells us about the beauty, the humility, the understated nature of who Jesus is is absolutely breathtaking. So let's keep moving. Let's pick back up where we were in the text. Let's review for just a second. The crowds wanted Jesus to be their violent, forceful, revolutionary leader. At the start of the passage, they're sweaty, dusty, wet, probably from crossing the Jordan River, anxious for violence. They're forceful, they're willful, they're proud. And at the end of the passage, they're sheep, sitting down, fed, and satisfied. Do you see the word satisfied there in verse 42? And they all ate and they were all satisfied. It's a word for deep, soulful rest. He did not fill their bellies. He filled their deepest need which goes far beyond their stomachs. So how did this happen for them? How did this happen for us? How do we go from willful and forceful and proud and violent to the place where we're resting and sitting down and having our deepest needs met? If we just kind of look back at the passage, what we've already covered, he taught them the gospel and then he literally fed them the gospel. He taught them the gospel and then he literally fed them the gospel. Go back to verse 41. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. If you move fast forward in the book of Mark in chapter 14, verse 22, you're gonna find the words of institution that we say a lot around here when we take communion. The same four verbs. He takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. And then he says, you take, this is my body broken for you. Now think about this with me. Think about one more part of every revolution that we know of from history and from watching the news today. Every revolution starts or has a spark that is an act of violence. Every one of them starts with storming something, assassinating someone, launching a war on a particular part of your enemy. And Jesus' revolution, while different in the way he accomplishes it, is not different in that it does start with an act of violence. That when he's on the cross, dying for our sins and giving us his righteousness, he looks out at the people who accused him, who mocked him, who lied about him, who beat him, who spit on his face. He looks at them and he blesses them and his flesh is broken. That he will not allow violence to come to anyone other than himself in this revolution and the way it starts is that he's the object of the violence and we're given life. We'll talk about that more when we take communion. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this beautiful life of yours. We thank you for your wisdom and your brilliance. We thank you for your beauty and your glory and your majesty. I pray that uh, as we take the sacraments and as we sing songs and as we 
hug one another and shake hands and say goodbye. I pray that you would be at work in our hearts uh, to repent of all those things that we think will bring us life and believing that you alone can give us life. We love you, Jesus, we pray for more faith. In your name we pray, amen.